Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Baringa Partners is a global consulting firm with expertise in sustainable finance transformation, ESG integration, and climate change risk. In today's episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast, I'm speaking with Sindra Maharaj, a corporate treasury and risk expert partner with Baringa in New York. We're going to discuss how financial institutions are navigating the transition to a net zero economy and why those already aligned with TCFD, that's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, likely still have some way to go to comply with the carbon and other greenhouse gas reporting protocol that the Securities and Exchange Commission is proposing. Sindra helps financial institutions with data, climate, and ESG initiatives. But first, I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning into this podcast, then you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Sindra, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here today. I'm so excited to, to, to do this program because we're just um, coming out of, it seems like, this, uh, this banking crisis, and I know that you can help us with some fundamental information about that. So there are fundamental differences for financial institutions between the SEC's carbon and greenhouse gas reporting proposals and TFC, TC, I'm sorry, and TCFD's recommendations. What are the differences and why do they matter? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Paul. So I think a couple of key things there. The SEC proposed climate-related disclosures are actually well aligned to the TCFD framework. And if I think about that, the guidance that came out of um, from the SEC, it's really outlined against four key pillars, governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets, and really requires U.S. companies to provide information on the climate risks facing their business, plans to address those climate risks, and metrics to detail how, the, how that company's climate footprint is progressing. Um, What's interesting, and I think your question is really around like any of the differences and key sticking points, a couple key differences there. So one within the SEC is around like scenario analysis activities. So the ask is for U.S. public companies to use scenario analysis to start to assess the resilience of their climate-related risks and to provide any required disclosures on information related to the scenarios. So what parameters are they using to consider? What are some of the assumptions? Any of the analytical data and choices that they're looking at? And as a result of these scenarios, starting to assess what that projected financial impact can be. 
the, the next one is around scope three emissions, and that's around the greenhouse gas protocol. And I'm sure you're going to ask me a question on that soon. <laughs> and we can go out, so I'll save that for a little bit because I think we can go, go into a lot of detail there. You know, it's interesting, some key sticking points. So the green, the scope three of greenhouse gas emissions is one there, and it is required. They're asking for firms to talk about scope three. The other one that's really interesting is they're asking firms to look at and disclose um, any climate costs that are 1% or more um, have an impact, have an impact of 1% or more on financial statements items. Which is interesting compared to, like, if I think about just overall audit or financial statements that are going out from public companies, there's typically a 5% threshold. So I think that that's another sticking point that's coming on. The other point that I kind of I wanted to make is we're, we're talking about the SEC, we're talking about the GHG protocol here. There's another one that's coming in, which is the International Sustainability Standards Board. And what we're seeing there is actually some, an effort of an overarching framework to bring together a lot of these voluntary frameworks that have been floating around for a while and really create a common reporting requirement. So that's currently in the process of being rolled out. A little bit of a sticking point, and of course, they would, we can't do any of this without some sticking points, Paul, and I, I'm sure you know that <laughs> from doing this, is we know IFRS. Um, the accounting standard is part of ISSB, and I think, but U.S. gap is not there yet. So from a U.S. standpoint, that's going to continue to evolve. Okay, so you mentioned scope three, so that's where we're going to go first. We're going back to scope three. Of course, what scope three emissions are about for uh, any size company really is the emissions that are produced deep into their supply chains. And often the, the, the companies that are part of that supply chain are not tracking emissions, don't have the capability or the, 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 the finances to do that kind of uh, emissions accounting. So how is that going to be followed and tracked, even let's say within a very large corporation? Yeah. Really good question again. So I'm going to just kind of take it from the top there, if that's okay. Sure. So when we think about the greenhouse gas protocol, the aim of the greenhouse gas protocol is really to standardize emissions, right? And how, in terms of how firms are able to calculate and report on their climate footprint, their emission data. So we talk about scope three, not sure how much your listeners know about scope one, two, and three. Um, but if I think about it, there's three, there's those, there are three scopes <laughs> when we think about it. Scope one is really around the direct emissions from company owned assets. So a lot right. easier, mm -hmm. um, to calculate and which is, which is your question here, right? Scope two is really around indirect emissions from companies purchased energy. A little easier to calculate as well. You can typically go to your utility firms, kind of try and get some information there. The third one, as you said, full supply chain upstream that we have to downstream, we have to start to think about it's all the indirect emissions in a company's value chain. And when we think about scope three and the GHG protocol, there are actually 15 categories that fall within scope three emissions. And that covers stuff like business travel, employee commute, uh, purchased goods and services. 
Category 15, actually, of scope three missions is the one that gets really sticky. And that's around finance emissions. And finance emissions for FS companies are significantly larger. So for financial services companies are significantly larger than scope one and scope two. These are typically, and this is coming um, from the carbon disclosure project, that portfolio emissions of global financial institutions is on average 700 times larger than direct emissions. Wow. So pretty big. When we think about it, that's so I think pretty significant. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, and I think everybody recognizes to your point um, the challenge that we have here because now, as I mentioned, that idea of seven hundred times the challenge for financial services companies is really how do you start to think about and manage reducing these emissions in a consistent, understandable, and transparent way. So. What, what, what has been emerging, and we've talked about a lot of standards, we're going to bring in another one into the picture now. It's uh, called PCAP, and PCAP is the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Professionals. So it's essentially a global accounting and reporting standard that's based on the GHG protocol for emissions calculation and actually reviewed by the GHG protocol as well. So similar to GHG, it's emerging as the primary standard for financed emissions calculation. And with over 200 and growing financial institutions committed to following these PCAF standards. So we're starting to see that emerge as that standardization for scope three coming into play. Now, what, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say what's interesting with that standard, and I think this is where you start to see it come in, is they've actually identified seven specific asset class categories. So when you think about financial firms, they can now start to align across these seven asset categories. So if we think about it, that's like listed equity and corporate bonds. It's business loans and unlisted equities. It can be project finance deals, commercial real estate, mortgages, um, sovereign debt, uh, motor vehicles. So they have, you're able to now look at your specific areas of business and your specific portfolios, your lending portfolios, align them to one of those PCAF asset class methodologies, and then follow a consistent calculation methodology to determine your finance emissions. So it's essentially, sorry, I'll let you Yes. That's yes. I wanted to, uh, before we, we, we talk uh, any more about the standards and, and uh, the different categories, I'd like for you to give us a couple of examples for our followers of specific financed emissions that you've been encountering and helping financial institutions to report on. Because I think one of the things that happens is that uh, many people just get lost in the protocols and and all of the uh, the processes, but they, they they never really begin to understand what it is about a particular bank or their customers that creates these kinds of reporting requirements. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And if I think of like specific finance emissions, so if I think of like. Uh, mortgages, for example. Okay. That, that's a good one. Yes. So a lot of the work that's happened that we've done as a firm, and you have to remember Beringa is a global firm here. I'm sitting in New York. We do have a pretty large presence. Well, we are founded out of the UK, is around um, green homes. 
and helping firms come down, understand or, or, or make a transition to a green home. So moving off of fossil fuel okay. to uh, moving down that path. So that's one example of like getting in and really helping firms assess what is that uh, exposure start to look like and start to think through each of their different decarbonization strategies to get there. So the way I would say we help firms is really, and where we are in this process, is helping them kind of assess their different portfolios and their lending portfolios and aligning them into these seven specific asset class categories. And then, which is the heart, to, to right now, it's just helping get your arms around what that starts to look like. Okay, good. So, Sandra, what rethinking of risk management frameworks should financial institutions consider in the aftermath of the recent banking crisis? Um, it seems like the, the, the markets and the, the industry are calming down a little bit, but you never know. So how can we focus more, get these firms more focused on their risk management frameworks? Yeah, that's a really good question and well, something near and dear to my heart because I think you, when you talked about it, it was corporate treasury experts and risk management experts. It is something near and dear to me. So I think the recent events that we've seen in the banking industry over the last couple of months now have really placed a renewed focus on the pressing need for companies to really reevaluate their risk management processes their practices, their infrastructure, their governance. And I think what we're going to start to see emerge over the next coming months, and I think, you know, coming out in May or very soon is going to be the regulatory review of SPB and what, what happened there. So I think what we're going to see is more focus on compliance, more focus on governance, more focus on resilience. Everybody's going to be talking about capital and liquidity. I think we're already hearing that come out. Or in terms of some, or in terms of some of the chapter, right? But, but what does that really mean? I think the three key things. And one is around agility. What the recent, uh, banking crisis taught us is the idea of real time or near real time data is really important to understanding sources of potential risk. So bank runs happen. We know that, but, uh, the Speed of bank runs is something that's really, that's coming, causing concerns now for regulators, for analysts, for shareholders with social media, with messaging apps. You're having organizations are now going to have to start to think about how you respond at a breakneck speed to some of these things. So that's one. Okay. The second one is going to be around risk culture. And just as, you know, as, as we see firms looking at their firm's financial metrics, I think we're going to start to see a review of regular risk attitudes and risk awareness coming out in management meetings. So are we going to start to look at some of the behavioral trends reviews, some of the cultural trends analytics? And you want to ensure like desired behaviors are being reinforced and the right mitigation strategies are being put in, in place before the fact. And I think that was something that came out. And last but not least, it's, it's a term that I have that I think is really important around risk management, which is around the idea of more connective tissue. So I think it's really important 
or when we think about risk management, to really understand the interdependencies across risk management. So today, we have a lot of silos that look at risk on a vertical basis within banks. You have your liquidity risk, you have your capital, you have your operational risk, and everybody, which is important, everybody's looking at that. But I think there's there's things that there's something that's missing that's bringing it together across the top and really looking at interdependencies and looking at and being able to to address any market pivots that may happen as a result. So I think we're going to start to see firms trying to build what I'm going to call that connective tissue and and bringing in, I think, you know, across, and this is not just financial services, I think this is going to be for firms in general, leveraging tools like stress testing, like scenario analysis, like resiliency planning um, as part of their BAU and running like periodic tabletop exercises on that. How do you start to identify some of the vulnerabilities in the system and change and react as the macro environment is moving? Okay, so now, of course, the banking industry is global. There are all different sizes and shapes of banks out there. What are some of the differences in governance considerations? Uh, let's, let's focus on mid-tier banks compared to larger banks, global banks. What are the differences that they have to think about when it comes to governance considerations? Yeah, uh, good question again. So I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, Everything that I just talked about, those three, agility, risk culture, connective tissue is applicable across the board. I think what's going to happen is where we, the prioritization is going to be a little different when I think of mid-tier banks and some of the global banks. And what do I mean by that? So what we saw in the recent earnings, and we're currently in earnings season right now for a lot of the banks here in the U.S., um, is we're seeing a lot of mid-tier banks, like their business model is being, uh, what's the right word, is being under pressure right now. We're seeing significant drops in deposits that they're talking about. I think I was reading something um, uh, over the last couple of days, and like some of these numbers are startling when you see the amount of deposits that have dropped. So I think we're going to see a focus from the mid-tier bank on stabilization over the next few. So when I think about, when we talk about prioritization of risk management, prioritization of governance, a couple of things I think would, are going to emerge. We're going to start to see stabilization. They're going to need to get their true financial metrics in order, their capital, their liquidity. We're going to probably see regulators come down with that and maybe using the enhanced prudential standards, which are, are which are financial like financial regulations that a lot of banks adhere to as it relates to capital and liquidity um, coming into play. And we've talked a lot about that going for banks. Uh, uh, once they hit that 100 billion threshold, taking that on, we're going to see that threshold probably uh, become much lower. So I think that's going to be the focus a lot for mid-tier banks um, in the short term um, as compared to some of the larger banks who already have that up, up and running. Now, there's a lot of been a lot of volatility in the, the banking industry, especially in the mid-tier around 
climate and ESG capital investments recently. And uh, what, how is that playing out across this entire banking turmoil process that we're going through? Yeah, really good question. Um, it's, it's funny you say that, Paul. I was talking to one of my colleagues uh, yesterday on this, and he was like, Sindra, we're in a green industrial revolution. And he hasn't coined that term. I'm sure you've heard that term multiple times. I have, I have. And we, we, we were debating whether or not that's true, right? Um, which, which was a little fun when we were doing that. Um, it's, in, it's a really good question. And the reason why I say that is the Inflation Reduction Act just passed. So with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, $400 billion of clean energy stimulus, and we're anticipating that would result in almost $1.2 trillion in direct investment opportunities over the next decade within the energy, finance, and sustainability space. So do I think the reason banking crisis has harmed that. I actually think the Inflation Reduction Act has created opportunity in the market here for that type of work. So what we're seeing from where we're sitting right now, our firms are starting to talk and, and bring deals out to their credit committees. So they're seeing significant opportunities and they're starting to spin up you know, their risk conversations and their opportunities. So the risk-reward conversations on these with internally. So that's definitely it. Um, I think what else is interesting to see, so I, I'd be remiss for me to say, like, we all know and we're reading it in the news right now, there continues to be external pressure um, related on backlash as it comes to ESG in the markets right now. And But there continues to be momentum uh, to support decarbonization efforts. And if I think about this globally, we're seeing the UK, Canada coming out with their own initiatives around like similar to an inflation reduction act. Um, but, but because we have a little bit of a first mover advantage here, we're seeing businesses taking advantage, like thinking about, uh, how they create a global competitive advantage. So how do you move on shore to take advantage of some of the subsidies as a result? So for example, in autos, Auto, auto, auto manufacturing, you know, there's something here where in the Inflation Reduction Act where you're related to minerals having to be sourced in the U.S. and vehicles having to be made in the U.S. So I think the opportunity is there. Um, and I, as I said at the start of the answering this, I think we're going to see that happen in the next decade. Okay, so we've got about 30 seconds left, Sandra, to, uh, for you to focus on how financial institutions will be using data to forecast the potential impacts of these regulatory changes and new policies. Do you have a, a brief comment on that? Yeah, I think I'm going to change that question, Paul. I'm not sure you like it, but I think it's going to be around. I think financial institutions are going to continue to use data for business decision making and risk management. So thinking about data into your pricing decision from a climate perspective, what, you know, which sectors and geos are going to be a focus area for you based on your strategy? How, what are the decarbonization plans that you're going to have for some of the other sectors? And then just from a risk management perspective, really thinking about data as, you know, the KPIs, how do you manage your KPIs and bringing together financial and non-financial risk okay. to manage that? 
So, Sindra, where online can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast learn more about Moringa, and how can they reach you with questions about the issues that we've discussed in today's program? Yeah, no, thanks for that. So definitely on uh, www.baringa.com on our website, you can learn a lot more about Baringa Partners and the work that we do, which spans not just financial services, but a number of other industries as well, um, including energy. And myself, uh, I would say, reach out to me on LinkedIn, happy to, to chat. And uh, yeah, just glad to be here, Paul. Appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sindra Maharaj, partner at Baringa in New York. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Music.